0: Welcome to the Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. One of the most eye-catching parts of the Lloyds of London blueprint reforms has been the syndicate-in-a-box initiative. The idea of a fast-track, light-touch, low-cost, fast-fail syndicate has gone down really well with the market. This is because, over the past two decades, many players have bemoaned the steadily increasing cost of starting a new Lloyds business – and have wondered where the next generation of new Hiscoxes, Kilns, Catlins and Beasleys might come from, given that barriers to entry are now prohibitively high. The received wisdom over that time has been that MGAs had become the go-to place for entrepreneurial underwriters to go and prove their mettle. So the Syndicate in a Box initiative was well received. The only trouble was that many in the market were a little confused about what the new structures can and cannot do. And that is why I tracked down this episode's guest. As the active underwriter of the first and currently only Syndicate in a Box, Stuart Newcombe of Munich Re-Innovation Syndicate 1840 is uniquely positioned to enlighten us on this exciting new departure for the Lloyds community. Stuart is an engaging and personable character with over 30 years experience in the market. I really enjoyed chatting with him and exploding some of the myths around the new structures. But what I liked more was hearing all about what the Syndicate is up to. This includes guarantee products for solar panels and energy saving schemes, ideas to ensure the gig economy and autonomous vehicles, as well as lots of interesting angles on the use of parametric insurance to fill in the gaps left by traditional indemnity cover. I think you'll enjoy it too. I started by asking Stuart to make a brief introduction by running quickly through his career to date. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in The Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience, because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry.
1: I started in 1990. The majority of my career has been uh, focused on personal accident um, and related special risks. So a lot of professional sports insurance, the uh, higher risk occupations of journalists in war zones, private security contractors, things like that. In about 2012, I made a move over from underwriting at the box to working more on the underwriting development focusing on new business lines bringing in new products bringing on board new teams and I was running that role when the, the syndicate in a box opportunity came through for us to work on so I started running it as a as a project and ended up taking taking ownership of it
0: so you've always been working on the innovation side of things yes if you're bringing in new business and doing and doing quite sort of innovative um, classes of business before you even started doing that anyway so but how come how did you manage to get involved in this and what was it like uh, and how
1: long did it take it was very, very fast. I, I came back from a business trip on the third week of July and was was sort of asked, um, would I mind picking up this project that colleagues in Munich had kicked off while I was away? And that was the start of Syndicate in a Box. Um, I took it over because, you know, European holiday season is in August. So an awful lot of them went away on holiday then uh, and we needed to have it approved. By about the middle of September to enable the blueprint one announcement to to go firm and say we have a first syndicate in a box. So it was extremely fast. Um,
0: so, did you, pro- you, so you sort of drew the short straw, is, is, is that right? No, perfect. Of the- uh,
1: <laughs> for me, it was it was really interesting and it was really very exciting. It wasn't a case of okay, here's a team looking to move from another syndicate. Let's let's check their plan. Let's check their numbers. This this was genuinely new and exciting. Um, and we were working very closely with Lloyd's as well which was a very good experience rather than just you know sitting outside analysing what somebody's presenting to you it really was a build.
0: So in terms of uh, this process you know obviously you've spent a lot of time a lot of your career dealing with Lloyd's and maybe you know if you're trying to bring on a business, new business line obviously you know annual um, syndicate business plan approvals and that kind of stuff so how did this process differ from that experience that you've you've had for many years?
1: it was very much about the speed and the flexibility there was a real desire from Lloyd's that, that, that this would work um, and they didn't want to be talking about it for years and so there was a very open dialogue throughout with expectations and, and I've described it before as it felt like they were laying the bricks about two steps ahead of where we were walking it was it was that live and they put together a making it happen team from people within the 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 corporation and we were in very regular contact with them to say okay we think it might look like this have a have a conversation go back refine it so as opposed to the usual submit and wait 6 8 weeks for a response back it was all being done virtual real time so very very different speed
0: so i suppose it's partly because you're sort of having the red carpet sort of uh, rolled out for you as was do you think it would be the same for everybody
1: who's going to be going through this kind of process i would say Broadly, yes. The desire is to build a syndicate in a box very quickly. That's the whole point. It is quick to build and ultimately, if unsuccessful, quick to fail. We're hoping it doesn't fail. We hope that they're successful across the piece. But it is about building quickly because it is a very different structure. The syndicates are smaller, they're lighter, they have a shorter tailbone business focus, a non-catastrophe business focus. So there, there is an element that we can view them slightly differently than we would a a traditional big lloyd syndicate which could have longer tail more cat focused business
0: yes let's really get down to the actual definition for for the benefit of listeners you know you know you you are you're the active underwriter for 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 the syndicate the the only syndicate in a box that's currently in existence so what is a syndicate in a box as opposed to a normal syndicate and you've mentioned some of the some of the elements there some of the
1: characteristics yeah um So Munich Re-Innovation Syndicate 1840 is the first one. I genuinely hope it's the first of of several. A syndicate in a box is part of the Lloyd's blueprint, the future of Lloyd's, and it's specifically designed to allow smaller scale, more innovative businesses to access Lloyd's, perhaps in their own right, where previously they may have come through as an MGA or or some other partnership, maybe using a a, a fronting carrier or something else. They can actually back their own underwriting. It has to be small and by small, I mean less than 100 million of of income on the plan. And as I just mentioned, shorter tail, non-catastrophe, not exclusively, but it's got to be focused much more towards the short tail because it is a fast build, fast fail type environment. It must focus on bringing new business to the market. It can't sit there and just churn existing classes of property, casualty, general aviation, whatever. It's got to be bringing value to Lloyd's. The exchange for that is is that they get a slightly lighter touch as they go. It has to have a non-traditional structure, if you will. Um, We're not allowed to have a box in the underwriting room at Lloyd's. And that contributes to the other part of being a syndicate in a box, which is that it must have a lower operating cost than a conventional syndicate. So it is very much about different ways of working rather than copy paste traditional Lloyd's syndicate structure. You've got to do things differently.
0: And with you, I mean, in terms of light um, you know, light, sort of light numbers of boots on the ground, I mean, how many people are you in, 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 in
1: Syndicate 1840? Syndicate 1840 on the ground has the grand total of three with a fourth being recruited. That is myself, uh, the other underwriter. We have a dedicated actuary for pricing and modelling, and we're recruiting a dedicated finance and reporting person. So that's it. The sum total in London will be four people. But what we do have the ability to is leverage expertise globally within Munich Re, which is why we built it this way.
0: And you mentioned about the fast fail. So, the, is, correct me if I'm wrong. Now, if you can go into what is the, what is the what is the fail element of, of of this? I mean, how do you have to have a kind of pre-packaged plan for failure or for runoff? Don't you? Is, is that is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Within part of our our SBF and our business planning we have a clear statement of what would happen in the event that the 1840 syndicate ceases to trade. That's a strict requirement from Lloyd's. Any future syndicates in a box will will have the same structure. We were lucky in as much as we, we part of an established and very successful managing agency. So with board approval, we could say, you know, if, if, if this doesn't carry on, we can look to, to the parent and the the main syndicate syndicate four, five, seven can take on that reinsurance to close. I think it's going to be a different set of challenges for for those who don't form in that structure.
0: Yeah, I, yes, that, that's doesn't fair enough because you know, sitting as part of the Munich Re group, you've, you've you've come in with a huge amount of credibility to say that it's fine. Some uh, the Munich Regroup group will uh, will make good, and it's not going to be a problem for the central fund. You know, if you're a genuinely lightly capitalized fledgling startup, how how do you think they might get? around that problem. Do you think some of the, the, the runoff syndicates might be able to sort of pre-package with them or, and kind of yeah. go in the plan with them to start with when, if you have a sort of, you know, uh, you know, a Riverstone or someone sort of behind you? Do you think that might be the way of working it?
1: I think it makes sense to me. I, I don't have an inside track, but if you're a, a true startup coming in that don't have an established managing agency to partner with, you're likely to go to one of the turnkey managing agencies And they're going to help you with that process. And yeah, the runoff syndicates, the other reinsurance to close structures that are out there make obvious sense. It'll probably just take a little bit more work and effort and a little bit more complexity than it did for us. But it's not insurmountable. It's just a different structure. Um,
0: Obviously, Lloyds was very keen to to have a first a first in a box to be able to announce on the day of the blueprint uh, on the uh, you know at the at the end of September the beginning of October uh, and that that big reveal that happened when when the blueprint was um, was was being uh, unveiled to the public. But other than sort of that be, wanting to be a good uh, sort of Lloyd citizen, what was the real what's the real rationale for for, for Munich Regroup to setting up uh, Syndicate 1840?
1: Truly, it's it's about having the best of both worlds. We're we're being greedy with it, frankly, in in a good way. Munich Re's got a massive amount of expertise and resources around the innovation space, data capture, data data modelling, data analysts, actuarial support. They've got a huge amount of of intellectual capacity to build these new types of products. But they are primarily a reinsurance focused operation with, with very specific primary insurance areas. So they've got great expertise, but perhaps distribution that that isn't quite on the same level yet. Lloyds has got the obvious advantage of a great primary license structure globally and with the international infrastructure of Lloyds to support that and the distribution power of the Lloyds Broker Network and and everything they bring to the table. So we we looked at it and said, this is a great way to take the best of what we have, the best of what Lloyds has to offer and, and combine the two and try and build something better. And as I said, leveraging everything that's already out there within those respective companies without having to buy or build again and raise the expense cost
0: right and so what sort of things are you doing that um with that you're bringing to the muniory group that you that it couldn't already do on its own obviously you you do mention you've got all those huge you've got fantastic resources and then you know and, and even another one that you didn't mention was muniory digital partners of course which is a really big big deal in insurtech you, you sort of got fingers in, in in every pie so what's what's really special about this this part of it was it is it really the licensing that that's that is that the main thing uh
1: no that that's the enabler um the Lloyd's innovation community, the network, is significant and growing, and, and we're fully engaged in that. So I'm I'm, been involved in several of the Lloyd's lab cohorts, as have my colleagues. Um, we're fundamentally involved, you know, right from the start with the the product innovation facility at Lloyd's, and then there's also the Lloyd's broking community who, you know, they're always looking for new solutions, new offers for their clients. So when we actually designed Syndicate in a Box, the early thought was that. This would be business flow from Munich Re to the Munich Re syndicates, innovation syndicates, to support their licensing issues. That is certainly still there and it's certainly still ongoing. But we're seeing an accelerated version of what we thought was a longer term issue, which was that we would have Lloyds brokers bringing their clients problems to, to us to try and find a solution within the Munich Re group. That literally started on day one. In fact, we had inquiries before we were even approved to underwrite. So we've got a, a real two-way flow of of not just requests for business, but some really innovative thinking, which is leading to some really good discussions with with brokers uh, and MGA's coming in with some very interesting alternatives. So it is definitely a two-way street.
0: I'd like to ask you also how um, now you're nearly uh, uh, into your first full quarter of trading. How's the actual experience of uh, nearly three months of trading
1: borne out against your plan? It's a very interesting path we're treading at the moment um we are on track uh, i would say we're we're perhaps a little slower than we wanted to be to get out of the blocks at the start of the year stupid things the amount of time it takes to get um lloyd's CITES so trust funds banking account set up. Um, we, we took much longer than we thought. Lloyd's were quicker than the banking community, um, so it took us a little longer to actually be, be running than we wanted. We have written our first risks. Um, the first risk was a very nice parametric risk for a windstorm in the Caribbean, exactly in the sweet spot. The pipeline is there and building. So, yeah, I'm confident we're on track when we built the plan we knew that it was a snapshot taken over a six-week window and this is another example of that Lloyd's flexibility that they sort of said okay fine here's the best effort we have now it's the best snapshot we can do now go away and and test it and, and we'll adjust it if we need to and that's what we're doing at the moment the core elements are still there we are seeing and well down the road with with either launching or selling the key products we hope to do I'd say we're a few weeks behind where we hope to be, but it's it's not insurmountable.
0: Oh, brilliant. Well, why don't you just run through what those key products are? So you're saying parametric. Is it is it, is it sort of all parametric stuff or, or are there any, any other things that people might recognise as being more conventional but just done in a slightly different way? Or anyway, just fill me in on, on on what is in that plan and, and also perhaps anything that's that's coming new now that all the brokers are coming to you with their problem.
1: Absolutely. The the plan broke into three key, key areas. We, we were focusing on green energy, parametrics and a a grouping that we've called emerging risks the green energy uh, we were looking uh, at a, a photovoltaic product as our first one across the line munich re have been writing photovoltaic protection products for some time now but they're focused very much at the high end of the value scale so we're working with them to bring that down into a more a more affordable sector
0: so those things are are things that i 've read of over the years from unit Re would be things like the, guaranteeing the efficacy or the, the, the power output of those units so that then the bankers so over, over long periods of time sort of like even fifteen to twenty years so that then the the bankers can lend the money against the project without having to worry about whether the product is going to perform or you know because they might they were, the previous worry might be that um that the solar panels might stop working after a certain amount of time and not be able to produce the power that uh, they need you know, that's to exactly. make income to pay the loan back.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly what we're looking at. We're not looking at the all oh, risks of physical loss or damage. There are established markets out there that cover those so very like well. It's like a kind
0: of product guarantee type thing, isn't it, I suppose? Um,
1: it, it's a well. sort of warranty It's a warranty backup. We actually underwrite the manufacturer rather than the person buying the insurance. We're looking at the quality of their engineering, which, again, is the technical aspect that the Munich are bringing. And we're looking at their financial stability. And what we're offering is is effectively a warranty backup designed to build confidence in investing in that solar energy, because if they buy their solar panels and they buy the 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 backup product then if there comes a time when their output performance is lower than an acceptable level they would expect to turn to the manufacturer for remedy if the manufacturer is no longer in business and therefore can't honor their warranty requirements then then we would then step in and honor those on their behalf so it provides that degree of comfort to the people who are investing in our target market somewhere between 1 and 5 million euros of value into a solar farm which is a mid-sized solar farm to say actually you can invest with some more confidence and and be certain that you'll get some uh, some return in the event that the equipment fails to function as promised and the insol- and the manufacturer is unable to support their promises
0: Oh, right. Okay. So, so it's warranty backup, but but and and does the uh, does the manufacturer chip in at all to sort of um, help subsidize the cost? Because obviously it's, it must be very good for them for their sales team to say, hey, buy our solar panels because they, you know, don't take our word for it. We've got guarantees.
1: That, I mean, there's different ways that they structure it and they sell it, and it depends on the complexity of the deal. This is very much uh, sold and priced as a as a protection to the investor, and either the investor can buy it in their own right or or the manufacturer could, in theory, contribute to it to build that comfort level
0: right and, and no just to be really clear actually who's buying it that so the yeah who, who's who's paying the premium
1: it can it can be either way so uh, you the manufacturer could in theory pay for it and then hand over the, the policy uh, in the way that you could assign a, uh, some other types of policy he can yeah. assign the interest with with the panels or somebody can buy it in their own right as long as there's that element of insurable interest that we're, we're tracking down it can go either way what on, else do you have to On the energy side, um, there's a clear need to actually just reduce consumption because what you don't consume, you don't then have to generate and therefore um, fewer carbon emissions or even, frankly, the need for fewer solar panel farms or or, um, or wind farms or or aquaparks. So we're looking at one which is related to energy efficiency insurance, uh, whereby, again, people are investing to, Make their companies, uh, schools, hospitals more energy efficient. And the, what this does is it, it allows them to again invest with confidence to buy that equipment, have it fitted. They should expect to see reductions in energy consumption. And if they don't, well, then we can come back and, and, and reimburse them for, for a proportion of those unrealized savings because they have priced. Their, their return on investment accordingly so it's a combined product it covers some machinery breakdown but particularly it covers the failure to generate the savings that are expected
0: Wow! and is that again a bit like the solar panel is it a bit like is that based on the efficacy of, of of the solution or is there is there some sort of is that partially eno and sort of design risk in there in that as well as it's it, is it- it you know, might just you might say if you install this you'll reduce your uh, power bill by by 30 percent but what if it just doesn't and it's and it's still performing as it was designed is just the way the engineer calculated it was wrong or, or uh, w- anyway so what' what specifically is covered
1: it's a three-part product so you've got um, a breakdown of the equipment there's an element of a simple business interruption and then the third part is this energy uh, efficiency and the underwriting there is key because The underwriting is focused on the the exact point you just raised, which is the design specification of the energy engineers will state what is going to be fitted and what they're expecting to see as a saving from it. And there is an element of having to be careful that we don't double account. You can't save the same electricity two or even three times. So very much the underwriting review is about making sure that suitable allowance has been made for that factor and that the expectations seem reasonable you know a solar panel can only do so much uh, improving the the efficiency of your air conditioning units can only do so much and so there's a, a technical specialist piece that sits behind that that analyzes that engineering assessment and says yes that seems fair and reasonable and once we say that's fair and reasonable then that's what we're responding to in the event that it fails to meet its expectations Oh, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Um, what else are you up to? Um, if we move on to the parametrics, which is probably the headline grabber, um, although parametrics have been around for for really quite a while in various shapes and forms, the the core with a parametric is that we have access to independent, third-party, verifiable data that is reliable and, and can be trusted by not only us, but also by the people buying the product. The one we've sold so far is is on, um, is on a wind speed in the Caribbean, which obviously is, is very well monitored and very well served with, with weather monitoring. But some others, we're looking at a hail using a, a proprietary hail sensor, so a solid-state sensor. We're looking at some for rainfall, uh, for river height, Anywhere where there is a a clear correlation between a set of factors, the parameters, be they the height of the river, the amount of rain that's fallen with a reasonable expectation of financial loss from the insured party. So what's referred to as basis risk, we've got to make sure that there is a suitable proxy relationship between the event and the loss. And the better the data, the better you can manage that risk uh, for the benefit of both parties.
0: Yeah, because that's, I mean, that's, yes, yeah, so just yeah, for, for listeners who are not really au okay with all this, this is the risk that uh, uh, that you have a loss and that the, the insurance doesn't pay because the parameter was was set sort of wrongly or, or the other one, the other slightly odd one is where you, you end up having a kind of insurance profit, but where you didn't have a loss, but where the parameter was hit, but you didn't actually have a loss because they weren't properly correlated with each other. How are you deploying them that's slightly different from um, other parametric uh, insurances?
1: Yeah, we're seeing a real move from parametrics as a as a well-established part of, say, the reinsurance industry um, and, and purchased by large uh, corporate buyers who are very risk savvy. They've got very sophisticated risk buying techniques where we're seeing greater and greater interest on parametrics is moving down that value chain, down towards SMEs and, and even sort of uh, retail consumers in some areas. It's not one we backed, but for those who want to to look at it, um, Flood Flash in the recent UK floods was a fantastic example of a parametric in action at the lowest level for for, for consumers. They were getting their money really quickly, and that's the key sell for uh, the SME and down to the retail level is that speed of flow of cash at the time when they need it the most. Uh, And that's what a parametric can really deliver.
0: Flood Flash was one I was going to uh, mention to you, and it's uh, for listeners, it's definitely worth checking out what they've been doing and, and what's happened in the UK. Um, I'm, I'm sure they'll be doing a lot of publicity around what happened uh, in the U- recent winter UK floods. And wh- what are the other main applications? I remember you mentioned something about perhaps open car lot for hail. That was quite interesting. Uh, it would be worth sort of uh, explaining to listeners about that.
1: Yeah, that, that's one we're still working to develop um, or to finalise. I'm hoping we're going to go go live with it very, very soon. For those who've been involved with the cargo market, the, the, the story of dealers open lot as it is called, which is damage to, to cars in the open, has, has not been a pretty one. And hail particularly has caused a problem with damage to metalwork, paintwork, windscreens, um, in some cases totally destroying the cars to the point they're they're right off. So the conventional insurance industry has reacted quite reasonably and put increased deductibles on and the rates have gone up because of that that historic loss record. So what we're offering is is a hoping to go through soon is is a product that's based around hail size and it is um it's it's a very low limit compared to the total value of stock, but it is enough to take the sting out of either the deductibles they're carrying on their conventional insurance policies or frankly again just to support cash flow if your business model is predicated on selling four cards a week for a large dealer in the US and suddenly you can't for the next two or three weeks until they've been adequately uh, surveyed by your conventional insurance adjusters and then the payment is made you're sat on a cash deficit for a fast flow business um, and they could use that parametric payout to make sure they pay their staff quite simply because you, uh, cause you could lose your, your,
0: your staff to because to, some of these hailstorms are really localized aren't they and you could lose your staff to another lot down the road. And if you've got a lot of people, I uh, presume a lot of those salespeople are working on commission only almost. Uh, and uh, if you don't pay them some kind of retention bonus, they're probably uh, they might move on and then you've got a real problem.
1: That's certainly part of it. And I think also for those who, who want to just keep their good staff, it's just a very attractive option to to be able to guarantee them that they're, they're going to be they're going to be paid in the event that that hailstorm comes through that they can keep the people they want and frankly treat their staff well. There's a moral aspect there that they could actually go around and guarantee to pay them, which which is a good thing to have. We're seeing that, there's, there's other things around um, filling the gap, because a lot of this parametric is about filling the gap of conventional insurance.
0: I was just going to ask you to clarify that because it's not really, so it's not an either or, it's really, you're saying it's something that's filling in in uh, where where insurance where traditional insurance is a bit slow or failing or there's just little gaps here and there rather than something that's going to completely replace traditional insurance
1: i don't believe that parametric insurance will ever entirely replace the traditional uh, indemnity insurance programs it's built to do different things and it's priced very differently what it does do is is give that rapid cash flow the rapid flow of money and as i said covering the gaps that could be deductibles which if you're in a complex claim situation, whilst each policy may have a perfectly fair and reasonable deductible, if you're stacking a few of them because of different insurance policies for different areas of your business, suddenly you're looking at quite a deficit. You've got other things that wouldn't necessarily be claimable under a business interruption or physical loss or damage policy. You know, your staff may just become more expensive because market economics after a major event says they can need more money for, for their work because labor is in short supply for example so what we see people doing is buying it to to try and smooth that part and say okay I've, I've done everything possible now to minimize things falling through the gaps
0: yeah well smoothing I suppose that's what what's insurance has always been a big part of so what about um what you've got any other innovations that are in the pipeline anything else you're excited
1: about Yep, we're doing a lot of work in the the third area we spoke about was the uh, emerging risk. And we're focusing here on uh, autonomous vehicles. We've got a couple of interesting inquiries come through as people are building more into particularly last mile type solutions. So not the uh, full expectation of autonomous cars driving us around the street, but perhaps picking up people from the far end of a, of a parking lot in the US and, and taking them to where they need to be. So that last mile solution and last mile delivery Uh, deliveries some quite interesting stuff there Um, and also around the gig economy there's a lot of work you mentioned digital partners earlier Um, a lot of their clients are looking at that changing the model so it's paper use if you're a say a a app-based delivery company you could have tens of thousands of employees on your books of which a variable number will be working at any time so using the technology that sits behind the apps to do real-time usage insurance is quite interesting and obviously, I think. Sorry, go on.
0: No, that's good. No? And see, so, and you're quite close to having live pricing and that kind of stuff.
1: Uh, that's 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 the aspiration. I think you need that data set to get live pricing. Um, so it's very easy to use for the motor, say, uh, motor insurance, where there's huge statistical data sets. A lot of the stuff we're looking at is too new to have that level. But it's more about live use measurement rather than dynamic pricing. It's that, okay, this person has logged on to the app to work for a two-hour spell, so that's a charge of two hours of insurance based on their app usage, all automatically monitored, that sort of product.
0: Right, okay, so it's it's about sort of doing away with all the admin, you know, because, of course, if we're trying to do this in the old-fashioned way, you'd be, it'd be impossible, wouldn't it? It'd be just sort of co- – you'd be raising cover notes and debit notes and credit notes to the point of going completely insane.
1: Um, Obviously, now
0: you can do it all digitally. You'll be fine.
1: Uh, We'll be fine. And also, a lot of it in the past would have been either modelled on historic usage declared by the company or or best estimates of how many people they think they have at any one time. And then you run the risk of being over or or under in terms of uh, the, the amount that they've been charged for their insurance. Here, it's a pure price for use which is much more accurate and more fair, uh, and frankly can also allow in, uh, companies to to manage their exposure to meet their insurance budget if they choose to do so.
0: So they can fully price it into what they're doing, if it, you know, because they yep. can price it into the job, absolutely, so they know that they're always covered.
1: Yep, and they're uh, not necessarily getting a minimum deposit charge up front.
0: Okay, the autonomous vehicle, just to jump back to that, so why is it, uh, you're talking about last mile, why particularly last mile solutions is that because what do you think they're likely to be safer these are the sort of things that um, i know there's one at the terminal five of heathrow if you go to one of the the, the short stay car parks you got these kind of bubble cars that will take you back into the terminal from the car park are those kind of things because what is that because they're better risks do you think that that they're likely because they pretty much go on set routes and they don't they're not as autonomous as something that's you know uh purporting to drive you across america while you're while you're on your ipad
1: it's it's pretty much about the stage of development of, of where the market is. Um, our, our colleagues in the US are involved with a lot of the testing programs for the true autonomous vehicles that we, we expect to see at some stage in the future. But they're very much in the test phase rather than the full launch phase. Whereas, as you said, the slightly more controlled uh, autonomous within close confines is a little further down the development line it's it's live in some areas so there is a live risk rather than a pure trials risk in a in a safe trials environment which is what we're seeing most of with the cars
0: and so just before we wrap up um given your experience so far obviously you're sort of uh, you know almost sort of eight nine months into into your, this project uh, and and, and f- through the end of your first quarter do you think this syndicate in a box format your gut feeling do you think it's going to be a really big part of uh, lloyd's future
1: I would say it will be a contributor. I'm not sure it will be on its own, the biggest thing necessarily, because it is by nature a fairly niche and specialist. But I do see it making a, a valuable contribution to the wider, the wider piece of the future of Lloyd's and the Blueprints. And I, I, I genuinely hope that works and that we, we see that success. We've For the 1840 syndicate, we've very much been the trailblazer with the expectation that others will follow. And a question was asked at the start of, of this process, well, why Munich Re? They're not very niche. They're not very innovative. Well, will we, we have the ability to do this work and take that risk that perhaps the true beneficiaries later on won't have the budget or the, or the, the appetite to take that pioneering risk. We're doing it. We're working with Lloyd's and, and I genuinely hope that others follow.
0: Well, I wish you every success uh, and, and I hope we'll be sitting in three years' time Uh, talking about the the process of graduating from being a syndicate in a box to going off to being a a full syndicate and everything else. uh, So do keep in touch. uh, Keep in touch with all the innovation that you're doing. And thank you so much for your time today, Stuart. I'm sure you must be incredibly busy with all the inquiries that will be coming to your, well, not to your box, but to your virtual box. And uh, good luck with everything. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And I think it's it's very interesting because there's so much interest in syndicate in a box and so few people actually know what they're talking about when they talk about it and and you absolutely do so thank you so much for that
1: mark it's been a pleasure thank you
0: voice of insurance is produced by me mark gagan music was written by anna gagan and produced by carlos gagan check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com